I know you weren't always in technology sales. Maybe you could take us back and tell us a little bit where your sales journey started. Yes, Paul, that's true. I, my sales career actually started many years ago in New York when I became a commission-only salesperson in the real estate sector. So that was quite a baptism of fire. I had actually moved over from working in the bank, which might have been my, my parents' uh, preferred career for me to say, get me out of here. And I embarked on a sales career back then. So, so when uh, was this, roughly speaking? Yeah, mid-90s or so. So I've got about 20 years sales experience, okay. maybe 10 years or so in real estate. Yeah. And then, you know, shifting over to technology sales in the last 10 years, when I think we actually uh, met up for the first time. So I, I'm curious, you, you, your, your role is, is uh, real estate, commission only. So hats off to you. That's not easy. Uh, on the other side, though, it certainly focuses the mind. I'll tell you that for nothing. I think people underestimate the value of a commission-only role. Um, however, I just want to understand, when you did that, was it a case of you just being given a job, look, there's a phone, off you go, were you given some training? What was, what was the introduction to that world like? Yeah, it was pretty much being thrown into the deep end. I must say I joined the business because I, there was a hugely, I attended a, an open house with a hugely charismatic Jewish president of the company. Really, you could sense he was a salesman through and through, but he just had such energy and positivity and also great discipline. You know, he was a guy who was black belt in judo, but he's really someone who made a lasting impression on me in terms of sales. And I suppose maybe we might touch on that a little bit later, the importance of a leader or a mentor. But for me at that point, embarking on that career, he had a huge influence on me. Very positive Wait, guy. I, I want to talk to you as well about a theme you mentioned about discipline as well, because it's a theme. It's something I see consistently amongst top, top performers. And I don't know that most hiring practices, sorry, hiring procedures are, yeah, really look for that or they don't know how to find it. So I'd be curious to know what your thoughts on that were. It, what you said reminded me, you went along to this open event. Have you ever watched The Boiler Room? Uh, I haven't got that one. That's okay, it. it's, it's really good. And, and it reminds me of that as where this company, they weren't selling real estate, they were selling shares and they were kind of a bit dodgy, right? Um, a bit like the Wolf of Wall Street type of scenario. Sure, yes, yeah. But they did that kind of open recruitment and you had this hugely charismatic person. I try and remember the name. It'll come to me or maybe I'll put it on the screen, but it'll come to me in a moment. Uh, the actor who played it and he played a fabulous role in this and, and really sold everybody in the room just through his energy and confidence uh, yes. on, on this, that they could too be like him. And I think what you're telling me is your experience was pretty similar. Absolutely. Hugely charismatic man. I really look, look on him fondly, you know, 20 years later. One of the best experiences of my life. And I learned an awful lot about the, you know, the, the constant trust of, of sales and negotiation uh, back then. Yeah. Okay. A colleague of mine had a similar experience wasn't real estate, but it was in a retail space where he, again, took this job of because because of a really charismatic manager. Then he went out the door, out to, onto the street, realized what had just happened, went around the corner and puked his guts up. And I'm curious to know what happened to you once you left that room and that exuberance kind of left your body and now you realized, oh, hell, I either sink or swim. What was that like? Yeah, so... I mean, I think this also maybe introduces what I think is key to a successful career is a, a mentor. So, you know, when I started out in that environment, the company was called Manhattan Apartments. 
they were the leading real estate rental company in New York. But I ended up shadowing one of the top salespeople for the first number of weeks. And essentially, I think there might've been a plan in place where the initial three deals that you did, you, you did on a co-broke basis. So this senior figure would show you the ropes and really guide you through from, you know, qualifying a prospect through to, which was quite stringent in New York. It wasn't just a tick the box. Mm. You know, landlords could be very specific on their requirements for various different tenants. That was the key lesson. It's just as important in B2C selling as in New York as is what is today in, in technology sales, uh, qualifying your prospect. So I, was, I benefited really from, I tend to be a, an extrovert. I engage easily with people and you know, I tried to attach myself to the top salespeople in the company uh, to do as many co-brokes as I could. So that was I really it's interesting on, on the qualification, the way you present it is that some people would see qualification as is somebody ready to buy? Do they have the reason to buy? And what you're saying there is, is it, it's, it's that, but it's also something else is also, are they a good fit? because yeah. you don't want every prospect. Um, you, you articulate that very well, Paul, because you know, it is the same as in B2B, that you know, we need to know the urgency of a prospect. I only got paid if the person that I was going out to show some apartments to really wanted to rent an apartment. So if we look in technology sales, we often talk about you know, what's their driver, what's the compelling reason to act. Similarly, you know, when people, when you're qualifying a prospect, it may, could have been a case that they were from out of state, they were coming to college, you know, from out of state. Maybe they were divorced, they needed to, maybe their, their lease was up, whatever it was, you know, there were obviously a certain number of uh, more urgent cases rather than, you know, a nice to have, you know, I'd like to see what's out there. You know, maybe we could spend a day or two having a look around the Lower East Side. Maybe we'll try the Upper West Side. You know, so qualifying mm. that person in front of you, that was the first role. And then to understand, one, their urgency, but on the flip side, it was really a, a matchmaking service. You know, mm. from a landlord's point of view, would they accept students into their building? Would they take a pet? You know, was the profile of the people in the building that they didn't want any students or musicians? You know, so, and some landlords, you know, it was the, if you like, the ball was in their court. So some of them would look for upfront payment. Some of them knowing that students could easily default, could look for a guarantor. So it was really trying to understand on both sides how we would get that uh, ideal match. I, I'm assuming the issue with musicians is that they would be practicing their music loud and that there was no inherent bias against people <laughs> who liked music. Correct, correct. There were plenty of landlords down in the village who would welcome musicians, artists, yeah. you know, people that wanted the yeah. grungiest apartments going, but, uh, you know. So then tell me how you, how you went from that world, which I can only imagine is a bustling, you know, Manhattan, you can, it's just, even just thinking about it, it's just energy, 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 fast moving, fast pace, uh, sink or swim. Then you moved from that, was that directly into technology? No, I came home for a while, worked in the property business, Paul, moved really from being a sales exec up to becoming a sales manager and, you know, eventually a sales director within real estate. But along that journey, I suppose, I decided that I kind of felt, you know, from a career point of view, maybe real estate in, in Ireland wasn't as exciting as what I had been doing. 
and you know i didn't see myself doing this in the long term so Ooh. i actually took a year out went back and studied for an mba and subsequently transitioned to technology a couple of years later yeah uh, what were the differences you found in the technology business as a sales director sales leader there versus what you'd done previously yeah good question paul and i think as a disclaimer one of the first things i found different was how structured the, the selling approach was, you know, having attended your own course, which was in Sander Selling, that was a real, you know, shift for me to understand how well we could qualify, you know, a prospect. But again, really the discipline of bringing, you know, momentum into a deal and to understand during the different sales stage, stages that on the far side of the table, our prospect is going through many different buying stages. And really to approach that, again, that match or that, you know, potential fit solution requirement, but, you know, approach it really from a rational, logical, and as well as an emotional point of view, because we know that both of those are a combination for a successful purchase. Mm. So your selling, I think, was, uh, was key, uh, that methodology. And from then on, I always used an upfront contract and always looked at, you know, planning before a call, how will I progress this deal? And, you know, that subsequently informed, you know, when I became a frontline manager, how do we progress, progress a deal? So that sort of was different, really, the, the, mm. the structure, the methodology, the amount of training. I was very fortunate in both Oracle and more recently in Informatica to work for two large enterprises who really invested in their, you know, salespeople, their sales leaders. Mm. And that's invaluable, you know, mm. and a B2B sale obviously is quite complex. So anything that helps us to manage and build momentum into a deal is uh, really valuable. Your, your passion now is in coaching people and helping people grow personally and professionally. Where did that come from? Sure. Um, I suppose when we look for, again, we look to people, who, you know, people I would have admired, if not a mentor, you know, people I look up to within when I joined Oracle. And some of the senior leaders were quite inspirational. I found them inspiring in how they could, how they themselves had evolved, had evolved their careers. And really the best of them did it through befriending and becoming um, you know, a, a really good frontline manager uh, for their staff, you know, where they built that trust and, and rapport, um, but also then that accountability with their employees, you know, in order to achieve their goals. So there's a, a plethora of those senior management who've moved outside of Oracle to lead technology firms across Dublin. Yeah, you know, I think that's indicative of the, the level of training and the environment that we were all operating in. It's interesting you mentioned that. I had a call yesterday for an interview a podcast with a chap called Daryl, who's uh, heavily into servant leadership. He trains organizations on servant leadership. And that was one of several, but one of the key characteristics of that servant leader persona, which was the ability to befriend, not buddy-buddy, but to be, you know, to, to have the interests of their team first and foremost, and to be able to connect with and empathize with, but also at the same time, hold them accountable. Yes. And, and that's a very difficult line to manage, I would imagine. What's your experience? Because again, you, you were a sales leader in, in both organizations, from what I remember. Correct, so. Paul. So I suppose really, to me, you know, the, the, the strategy, sorry, if you like, the 
effectiveness of a sales leader, it really starts from the top down, you know, if you like, from the exec level in terms of really assessing the strategy, you know, what the objectives are, the KPI for each team, you know, what are the metrics for each sales team in terms of quota attainment, pipeline creation, coverage, whatever it is. So I, I think really the responsibility at the highest level in terms of and the platform for success is really set from leadership in terms of, you know, tools and processes and training that we give to our salespeople. But then really the frontline manager plays, you know, uh, you know, on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis, that ability to embed the right cultures and, you know, instill the, the correct behaviors within the sales team. That's what a good FLM does, okay? And I think coaching happens really maybe formally in a one-to-one -one basis, but also on the floor every day in terms of in context, picking up on a, on a rep who's having a call with someone, you know, maybe assisting with the discovery call or listening to, you know, picking up on something you can share as a, a job well done or something that could be improved. But on a weekly basis, then really coaching on the basis of where are we in relation to our scorecards, you know, our, our pipeline creation, our revenue, etc. So to me, yeah, that's the key role. Yeah, no, I'm curious because I'm, I'm curious to know where the, the line between coaching and managing in terms of what I, what I see a lot is managers saying, okay, I'm going to coach my rep on their pipeline. And really what it is is a pipeline review, which is not coaching. And it's, you know, wh wh when, when is that number uh, going to come in or is that a commit? And every company has their own language yes. around it. And I'm just curious to know your own experience of that. Have you been in those situations where with all good intention you want to coach, but it ends up being a micromanaged conversation. Possibly when I transitioned at first, Paul, you know, to a frontline manager. I mean, I think it's a journey a lot of people have to make from an individual contributor role to a frontline manager. And I think, you know, if I was to look back, my first year, I was less effective as a coach. I think I did a lot of telling, you know, a manager brings a lot of knowledge and experience and capability. And I think probably on a day-to-day -day level, I jumped in, you know, to, I wanted to co-handle the discovery call or, you know, I remember, you know, responding to an RFP, reading an RFP myself over the weekend, you know, or editing one over the weekend. I for a while, this is not scalable as, as a manager. So I had to put, take a step back and realize that to be an effective manager, you know, I had to stop the telling and more uh, listen to you know expect the sales rep would come on a, on a weekly basis to discuss their opportunities or their deal how they might progress and but that they'd done the preparatory work they knew where they were and then understand where their blockers were or you know listen to them what the problem was what they had tried to date and um, who they looked to who is already successful in our team who could potentially show them this and absolutely then if i could assist or guide them you know, that, that really was a transition. It's the ability to have less control and more, you know, influence and guides, you know, facilitate their learning as opposed to be, you know, in the driving seat. So, Other than the downside of it's just not scalable, where do you see the other downsides of that approach of let me show you how it's done or let me help you out? Well, not being scalable is key. So mm -hmm. if I flip that, you know, to develop the right culture, not just on a performance culture within, within an organization, 
I'm wondering how can we leverage the lessons of an individual across the team? And I think as I, as I progressed as a manager, it was really that on a weekly basis, I would have a, a wrap-up call on a Friday to reflect on you know, deals that were won, opportunities which have progressed, challenges that we were having, and, you know, I use that moment firstly to recognize achievement. OK, mm. and I'm very much someone who believes that you build a team and, you know, a performing team by encouraging and cajoling, but promoting the individual who, you know, who has shown the right behaviors and the right what you want the team to, to, to pick up on. And, mm. and to, so I was very much I, I would elevate the give the individual the stage to talk through their their win or their campaign success, et cetera, and very much acknowledge them in front of senior management, send out win communications. And that has two effects. Firstly, it builds that individual's confidence. It elevates them. They tend to double down themselves. But you know, within a true sales team, it also has the rest of the team. If they're, if they're true salespeople, they're competitive and they themselves are going to come back the following week looking to you know they want to be on the board they want to get that type of recognition so mm. that's the approach i took and i think it, it really was yeah. effective and then more recently where i worked we had a very high employee engagement score and i think that the team really liked that kind of collaborative learning approach so yeah. to be shared curious, learnings are really uh, important yeah I'm, I'm curious to know as well in your experience in both say oracle and informatica one of the challenges i often see frontline managers have is when they're coaching is and it's going back to that temptation to jump in and and, and what they end up inadvertently doing is creating a sense of uh, learned helplessness in that you create this uh, almost parent-child relationship where you're now saying to the rep come to me and I will solve your problems and of course what they will continue to do. And I think part of that, and again, it's not universal, but part of that is sometimes habit. If you're a frontline manager, you've come from that and you kind of go, well, I know how to do it. And it's sometimes, well, it's just easier. I think there's that. I think there's another thing as well. There's a kind of an ego stroke where it feels good to be wanted and to be needed. So, and, I, and I see that on one side. And then on the other side is there's a fear with some people that if I really make my reps really independent and, and I help them grow to be better than they are, that they're going to leave me. I don't mean on a personal level, but they're going to grow and, and, and want to expand their own career and go somewhere else. And now I have the headache of trying to find somebody else. And, and it's that dual forces. And I'm, now I've seen it. It's not widespread, but it does exist. I'm curious to know if you've seen it, if you even experienced it, and if so, how you overcame it. I can't say I ever came from that uh, mindset that, you know, I was afraid to overcoach or overtrain any of my reps. You know, I think I, I do think the, the onus on a rep, a successful rep is, you know, they need to come from a place themselves of a certain amount of drive and accountability and very much they need to be self-aware in terms of what gaps they might have. And absolutely, if I was a hiring manager, I'd be looking to see that in the interview. Are they are they coachable? And how, I by the way, I'm curious, this is a $64,000 question. How do you determine in an interview process if somebody is coachable or not? Yeah, I think you can tell, you know, if you really ask someone to talk through a previous role that they had, 
a successful deal or an unsuccessful deal or mistakes they've had, you know, what they've learned from that. Okay, so it's easy to talk about a, law, a win and uh, how great it was, but we probably learn, all of us learn more from difficult situations. So I'm always interested to hear from the individual where they've stumbled. I myself, I've fallen many times and um, I think that's where you have your greatest uh, lessons. So it's really, that's where I have my ear out for, you know, an individual who uh, learns along the way, self-corrects, and also someone, of course, who, who shows up. They must have that drive themselves in mm. the beginning. So yeah, that's makes sense. where I come from. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, now about your business right now, what you're doing in the sales world with all that experience. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, now, I, now I'm in transition now. A couple of months ago, I finished up with Informatica following a couple of great years there where I built out their EMEA inside sales teams. So I'm hoping to transition, you know, I'm speaking with a couple of companies at the moment. I'm hoping to transition preferably with a smaller company who wants to scale again within EMEA. Um, that would be the ideal role for me. You know, I've had second line manager experience as well. And I think I'm quite strategic by nature. So I'd like a leadership role or to have a business unit responsibility within a larger firm. That's what I'm hoping to do. Definitely sticking to the cloud world. And I'd like also to in an, ideally work with a, a SaaS company. Mm. Uh, you sounded very sure when you said that. And I'm, and I'm curious to know why. Why is that particular space so important to you? Well, I've invested heavily over the last 10 years in understanding technology. I've seen all the trends in terms of the move, the migration from on-premise to the cloud. It's clear now that the better performing uh, businesses across every vertical, but also within sales, are um, digitally enabled, okay? Mm. So I attended a, a, a webinar recently with uh, Gartner referring to emerging technologies. And, you know, they're just saying that by 2025, you know, potentially 80% of B2B sales will have moved online, okay? So if we look at the sales cycle now, that, you know, already from the beginning to the end of a, of a, of a, of a purchasing journey is happening online. You have, you know, initial research, uh, access to marketing collateral, uh, marketing assets, you know, customer win stories, the ability to download a trial, provision an environment, play with the technology. You can do that up initially, and then um, later in the sales cycle, with many companies now, you can purchase with a credit card. You can review legal documents through DocuSign. You, mm. you can review you know, SLAs. So really the window where salespeople are playing is narrowing. Mm. And it's, it has also become more important because if you like, the more these lower engagements you know, within the sales cycle are becoming automated, for that time, when we do engage with our uh, prospect, we certainly better be coming with uh, value to nourish their engagement and to meet their yeah. expectations. I'm curious the way you describe it as well is it's almost as if, you know, particularly in high tech sales, process, a lot of them were very process heavy. Just getting a contract through an organization sometimes can be a challenge. Uh, what you're saying is a lot of that now is being automated. So the process jockeys in an organization, those who are really had to love the process and loved just moving paper from one side of the desk to another. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, that's a real skill in itself. Um, but th that that's the requirement for that skill set is, is disappearing. Where do you see the sweet spot for B2B sellers 
in the future, given the context of the Gartner uh, presentation that you saw? Yeah, yeah, good question, Paul. So I won't say that same process jockeys are no longer required. Process still has its place, but we have to realize that a lot of this is now being automated. And really, I think winning companies are those who invest in the technologies and the tools to be able to you know, monitor those customer footprints mm. early in the sales cycle. So when they do engage with them, they have the clues already. They know yeah. which assets have been downloaded. They know maybe from looking at their uh, engagement with a, a test environment, you know, which functionality they're accessing. Depending on the complexity of the sale, there, and there still is obviously room for a salesperson, but I think that salesperson really needs to come from a customer-centric business outcome value selling approach okay mm. and then i think the engagement will really be in terms of truly understanding the and customizing the requirements of, of that company so mm. we can only when we automate we're generally standardizing but um when we engage with the customer we're really going to be customizing or tailoring mm. for their 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 mm. own needs yeah one of the things I think about sometimes is that 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 relationship between sales and marketing it, it has in the past been very siloed in many organizations uh, for some very good reason. Sometimes it's political and ego and all that kind of thing, but sometimes it's very good reason. And what I've noticed is with the digitization is there's a again a rush to automation, and and I, you see it in sales where people will send out a thousand emails and they just get deleted because whoever receives those now knows it's not customized, it's not personalized, even though it looks it, it's not, they know it. But on the marketing side, here's, uh, here's an experience I had yesterday, was I was looking at CRM products and there was one particular company, I will, shall remain nameless, and it was a video that they had on their website. And I'm going to click on the video just to have a, a sense of what it was. And up comes a little pop-up where I had to give my details and I went, no not doing that. And I don't have any philosophical, you know, reason not to give my details. My details are everywhere. Yes. That's not an issue. It was just the idea of, I just want to watch the video. And it was straight away, there was this gate. And I, I think from a marketing perspective, they're going to have to, again, get comfortable letting go of that control. I mean, I've seen other organizations a lot worse. I remember one that I worked with, uh, you would know the name as well, because you worked with them. And it was about eight different click-throughs you had to go through to get a piece of marketing material that you yeah. wanted to get as a prospect. And, uh, and, and I'm curious to know if your own thoughts on that divide. I see shifting. I see more and more salespeople having to do a little bit of their own marketing. For example, on LinkedIn, somebody may make a comment on an article. Well, in today's, right, in 2021, a comment on a link, art, LinkedIn article, that's a lead. That's a clue. There's something there. Yes. Right. In context. And, and I'm wondering how, what, what needs to change. So looking at marketing from a sales perspective, what do you need to see them do differently for them to serve you better? You know, the, there needs to be a, a seamless handover, if you like, between marketing and sales. And I, they absolutely belong in the same place. You know, I think they can't work in silos. Okay. So we, our customers are really looking to, for a seamless experience end to end. And I think, you know, for, what does that mean? It means really when they do contact or engage with us, they need a fast response time and they don't want to have to regurgitate 
their requirements again and again across different lines of business. Mm. So that customer experience is coming to the forefront now. Um, never has been more important. We see across retail, you know, from uh, an e-commerce right through from interest to purchase and upsell and fulfillment and customer service. And it's same with from a, from a purchaser's point of view now, I think in dealing with vendors. So they really want companies that can pick up you know, where they've left their footprints online, respond to them quickly. So that needs to be a fairly seamless handover from marketing to sales. And likewise, when they come looking for quoting, and I think this is another area where Gartner referenced, you know, configuration and quoting is, is an area that could move online. So this mm. might be worrying for some salespeople, you know, are they going to take themselves out of a job? You know, you might have a lot of pricing experts out there. You know, buyers are looking for the companies who are easy, easy to do business with. Yeah, so um, that's a collaboration. It's not just with sales and marketing. It's also marketing and sorry, it's the the, the whole way through to customer service, you know, and support Mm. later on customer success and support. It Mm. needs a unified approach. That's what customers want. I mean, I myself recently transitioned. I tried to move my port, my number over from uh, Vodafone to another network. And, you know, I spoke to someone on the phone and I went online and um, I was directed to a WhatsApp group. And in each case, no, no one would have had an understanding of you know, my engagement with the company. So this is an area um, where in, we're gonna see a lot of change and I think evolution again, that kind of omni-channel experience. Mm. So You have experience of teams that were divided between SDRs, BDRs and AEs and you have experience of teams that were predominantly a prime role. I'd love to know your thoughts on those models, which you see, is there, is there a more effective one? Does it depend? Is it horses for courses? Yeah, I, I, I have my own thoughts and I just wanted to get yours. I think it is horses for courses, depending on the nature of the business. But in certain companies, I mean, I see that we hired a group of uh, SDRs, and I think they bring real value to maybe strategic accounts um, or opening up new doors, purely focused on on lead creation, okay? Mm. So not distracted by, you know, that's part of my role, but, you know, then I start working on an opportunity and I don't make any outbound calls. Ideally, I think, though, uh, a salesperson should, um, in an ideal world, receive leads from, have some responsibility themselves Mm. across the accounts that they're managing actively to prospect into them. I mean, prospecting is a skill which everyone needs to work on continually. If you're a sales rep, you, you do have the advantage of relationships you're building over time and, and knowledge of the account you're building over time. So I think the, the responsibility, I think it's a shared one, but I think it's horses for courses, absolutely. And maybe uh, install-based larger enterprise accounts versus you know white space. They're very different uh, yeah. environments. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always think it's a shame that, that BDRs, SDRs, and I just use those terms interchangeably because they're different in different organizations, are often seen as the, the, the entry-level position, the junior role, when in reality, it's probably the most difficult of all the sales roles, talking to strangers, I, yeah. trying to get somebody I, yeah. who had, you know, not on, I'm talking about outbound now, not inbound. But even in, even inbound can be challenging itself because very often it's a junior person in the prospect organization is sent out to fact gathering, gather information, and they don't give their details and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think it's probably the most difficult sales role 
but we 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 put the most junior people in there and i'm just i don't know if you had any thoughts on it if you something that you've seen experiments with people trying to do something differently i would agree with you that it's uh, one of the more difficult roles paul and it's also a really valuable role you know especially an sdr function you know when you're purely your metrics are purely, you know, op creation or creating meetings, etc. So to me, people who do that role really well, I mean, my advice to a junior salesperson joining would be to become very good at prospecting. Mm. Some of the best salespeople and subsequent managers and leaders that I've seen have come through up through the ranks uh, from prospecting. And I don't think anyone should be too, too proud to do this. It's a skill that's really well mm. worth investing in and uh, it's challenging. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, you're it's right. I certainly respect. You're right. Yeah, you're right because, as you mentioned a moment ago, that the AE most AEs don't will have to prospect themselves anyway. Uh, but the other thing is maybe it's one of it's like you're coming full circle to real estate in Manhattan. It's a sink or swim type role that if you don't have the what it takes to be successful long term in sales, you're not going to survive the SDR BDR role because it'll just be too tough. You're touching really now on maybe what competencies, you know, make for a mm. good salesperson. And, mm. you know, one of them is clearly resilience. And surely at the lower entry level roles, you do face rejection more often when there's no, no relationship uh, already established. So the warmer and the, the engagement and the more that evolves, um, surely you're now speaking to someone who knows about the company who's spoken to some of the junior staff and, you know, it's a much easier conversation. They actually want to speak to you at that time. So yeah, I yeah. think, you know, if I look at the competencies that I look for in a salesperson, again, that resilience, yeah. it's, it's key for a long-term sales success. You say resilience. I'm smiling to myself because what I'm thinking is that that role is like an 18 month hazing experience for sales. <laughs> I guess that an 18 month hazing. You know, these rituals where you have to get into a sorority or, what, you know, those um, okay, yes, yes. clubs and you have to go through this ritual and prove yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and I think no, it feels a little bit like that. Nothing, there's nothing demeaning about it. Um, no, 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 it's not. No, I'm not saying it's demeaning, demeaning but it's uh, something that you have to go through to when you come out the other side. It's like you've earned your stripes. Absolutely. Do, do that role well. And, you know, you've earned your progression and it'll yeah. absolutely stand to you in time as a sales rep. Yeah, 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 for sure. So we're, we're finishing up shortly. Uh, now, I'm just looking at the clock here. We've got about eight, eight minutes left. And I wanted to explore with you if you were now uh, the end of your career and you're at your own retirement party and some... 25-year-old starter in an organization comes up to you in the corner while you're over at the cocktail bar and says, Niall, look, you, you're, you're, you're a legend in this organization. And I really, really want to be like you. And I want to learn what you've learned. What insights would you share with them in terms of what, you, what, they, what they should focus on in order to be successful in their sales career. Thank you, Paul, for that. Um, for, for a start, I hope they don't want to be like me, okay? You know, my career- They want to have your success. Uh, pardon? They want to have your success. Yes. So, yeah, everyone recognizing that they are an individual. I think, you know, my advice to them is to own their own destiny as a salesperson. I, you know, when I really look at people who've progressed through their careers, 
the first thing I'd say is maybe find themselves a mentor, okay? So along with your, your frontline manager who can help you with your, you know, week to week, help, help you building your skills and your competencies and, and confidence in, in the immediate role. I think a mentor, I've always had a couple of mentors either within the business and outside, you know. And just for people who are maybe, sorry, for people who may be not clear on it, what do you see as the difference between a mentor and a coach? I suppose I see a coach really as um, someone who's managing you on a day-to-day basis, interested in the the outcomes that you need to get to, to meet your KPIs. So, Mm. and maybe your progression, you know, within that organization from that role to the next immediate step. I think a mentor can really be can be outside the business altogether and really challenge you on where you want to go career-wise mm. and make you aware of lots of options out there. I think there's a danger within companies. You talk about other lessons I might share. I think people can live within their own bubble in a company and not really know what's happening outside of, you know, like for instance, where I was working in Oracle for seven years. So there's another concept of outside. I think outside is a really valuable uh, lesson for, for me over time, which is, you know, what's happening externally to, even if I'm happy in my current role, what's happening outside of this organization in, in Dublin, but also in the context of the technology world. And I retain good contacts with many of my peers. And, you know, even though time has become more precious or squeezed, you know, at, you know, for me, I still, each year, I try and meet a number of my peers to talk through business and you know the journey they've been on and that's key okay so Mm. that's another thing develop and maintain your network okay okay i think being coachable is key and i always welcome and have welcomed feedback Mm. even if it wasn't what i wanted to hear and maybe some of the more valuable lessons i've received is when i had 360 degree feedback Mm. you know where you may think that you're operating as you know, a successful level or everyone's happy and, you know, your team and your peers and your other other parts of the business who you connect with. And, you know, a 360 can be very grounding. You know, you, it can reveal gaps that mm. you don't see, blind spots that you don't see. So um, never be too afraid of asking for feedback. And uh, to me, it's really, really valuable. Okay. okay. So I have three um, so far. I have find a mentor, build your network and look for feedback correct and okay. i think collaborate within an organization you know as a salesperson you'll only get so much time from your manager mm-hmm. you may be leaning on a lot in the beginning but there's huge value coming from other lines of business and mm. you know i think you know marketing pre-sales sales enablement teams most of these people are they're very generous with their time you know, and yeah. they're people, they're people, people, and they want to share their experience. And mm. you approach them with, you know, the right amount of respect and support their initiatives. Absolutely, they're going to be, they're going to help you. So yeah. befriend the experts in the business. You know, it's funny. It's funny is, should, is, what, yeah. what I'm thinking of, Niall, as you're saying that is that there's a lot of organizations now put a lot of stock in diversity, rightly so. And just even from a pure business perspective, the diversity of experience and ideas, whether that's from a culture diversity, gender diversity. I think people often leave out, and you've hit on it, which is why I wanted to go back over it, is 
the diversity in an organization in terms of perspective, that a marketing person will have a very different perspective. A product person, the product manager will have a different perspective. Somebody in finance and for people to build their network and collaborate, which is your fourth point uh, with those other groups. So that gives you another pillar of diversity, which is often underemphasized, but is actually really, really important. 100%. So, you know, there's many, many times as a rep where, you know, by picking the brains of someone, you know, across those different lines of business, they would have given me ideas in terms of prospecting what's worked in other regions. Pre-sales could have shared, you know, a similar challenge that they've had by working on a different deal. You know, communication and collaboration, you know, they're just essential to succeed, especially in solution selling. You know, it's a complex business. You're never going to win it on your own. My previous uh, leader used to say that selling is a team sport. And that's absolutely true for technology sales. Yeah, for sure. That seems to be a great place to leave it, Niall. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. People want to get in contact with you, Niall. What's the best way? I'm on LinkedIn, Paul. Yeah. Okay. I think any digital person will find Niall me Niall McHenry, I'll put a link in, in, in the video along the bottom and people can just put that in and they'll find you on LinkedIn. A pleasure so, to catch up, Paul. Thanks, thank you for your time. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Niall. Cheers, Paul. All the best.